I'm Jez Benton and this is Route to the Top. I'll be meeting with a whole range of leaders, we'll climb a mountain together and do a video podcast from the summit. In this episode, coming to you from Aspen, Colorado, and I'm meeting with Neil Cattiel, a lawyer, the former acting solicitor general to the United States. So welcome everybody uh, to this episode of Route to the Top, which is at the top of Aspen Mountain in Colorado. I'm with Neil Cattiel, and you have the pleasure of being the first person on route to the top above 10,000 feet. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so my last one was in, uh, was in Jackson Hole, which is actually where we met right. um, at, a, at an offsite I was running. And um, I did one there that was only 9,000 feet. So <laughs> it's not the longest. I'm back off of two days of, of climbing, but, um, but certainly the highest one. Well, and just want to set the record straight, Neil kicked my butt coming up here. Well, um, I also didn't hike 20 miles over the last two days as you did. <laughs> but I have to say, mentally, I was prepared for this interview to happen while we were hiking up. Ah. So this was like candy to me. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is, uh, it, it, yeah, I find it very difficult to walk and talk at the same time. I, I thought so too. I thought, what's my strategy going to be? It's like, oh, well, if I ask him some questions, <laughs> he'll talk a lot and then I can huff and puff up the mountain. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. And I'm still a bit winded now, uh, even though we've been here for 10 or 15 minutes. So, but it was a great hike and thank you. And I know you're, you. you're a part-time resident here and have done this many times. Um, but let's get stuck in. Let's do it. So where do I want to start? I think I want to start with uh, former acting solicitor general. Mm -hmm. As a Brit, that means nothing to me. I have no clue. <laughs> it doesn't mean much to most Americans either. <laughs> Barely means something to me. <laughs> so excellent. All right, well, let's get stuck into that. What does it mean? Uh, uh, what did you do? When did you do it? And then I have a few follow-ons from there. Yeah, so I was the top lawyer for the federal government, the top courtroom lawyer. There's two kind of top positions if you're a lawyer. One is the attorney general, yeah. and one is the solicitor general. The attorney general sets a lot of policies, gives a lot of speeches, works with the president on initiatives. But when it comes to being in court, the attorney general's not in court. That okay. was me. And so I ran all of the courtroom strategy for the federal government, the most visible part of that job is to be arguing for the Supreme, in the Supreme Court of the United States on behalf of the federal government. But it also involved other things like President Obama passed Obamacare then, and yep. I was tasked with defending it not just in the Supreme Court, but in the lower courts to start. So you were, so it was during the Obama administration Correct. is when you were there. He, he's an interesting president for me. I think he's probably the only president where I felt like I had a contemporary like somebody who is older than I am, obviously. But Joe somebody, Biden? So, <laughs> not quite. Even Donald Trump. You know, it's just like, you know, somebody I, I, I felt like I could relate to. Young children, yeah. uh, you know, interesting background, you know, worked really hard to get to where he got to, did a good job. You know, I, I felt for once there's a president there that I could actually relate to. I 100% agree. Um, he was an incredibly decent person. Normally, the people in Washington who succeed are not. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, um, you know, thoughtful, uh, tried to do the right thing, even when it hurt him. Um, so it was a real privilege. Yeah, so, yeah, I can yeah. imagine. I can imagine. And uh, now you do a, a lot of interviews. Um, you know, you're on television a lot. You've been interviewed 
a, a lot. Um, Never been interviewed at 11,200 feet? Yes. <laughs> it's a first for everything. Um, Although Katie Kirk did just interview me on the gondola coming up. Oh, did uh, she? Yeah, last week. So, oh, that's so funny. <laughs> but fortunately, it stopped at about 11,000 feet. So we're still... Okay, we're, we're still, still above. Yeah. We're, still, we're looking down on the gondola. It's exactly. Over there somewhere. Yeah. So. Um, but I know you, you're a part-time resident here in Aspen. Um, and I know you're obviously not the acting solicitor general anymore. And you have a speech this evening. So what's what's that about? Uh, it's about the Supreme Court, which has been um, on a terror recently. And yes. Some really very extreme conservative decisions. It's very hard for me. I love the court. I've argued 45 cases at the Supreme Court. Um, I've dedicated my professional life to it. And this court, the, the Supreme Court over history, has been such a powerful kind of crown jewel of our American democracy because it does protect people's rights, but it does so kind of incrementally, slowly, carefully, yeah. with a lot of respect to the wisdom of past generations. And this Supreme Court's kind of gone overboard in the other direction. And so it's a real concern to me, and that's what I'll be talking about. Yeah, it's, in it's interesting that you feel that way. I think I read something about you that said you're a, an extreme centrist. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes, extremist centrist was, I think, the language I coined. It just means like... And I think this is where most of America is. It's like they're not like viewing everything through a partisan lens. And they recognize that both Democrats and Republicans do have solutions, at least, you know, Republicans did used to until the party became co-opted. Um, and that's also true on the Democratic side with some of the things that have happened. So, you know, I like to think that I want to take ideas from where I, I don't care where an idea comes from. This is like how I run my legal practice, how I do everything. I don't, I don't care if it's someone who I disagree with vehemently. I don't care if it's someone who doesn't have the same degrees or experience. If it's a good idea, I should listen to it. And that's kind of what that's about. Yeah. And, and, and that I think is, has been part of your, your success because not only did you argue a, a lot of cases at the Supreme Court, I was, is it something like 53? Right? 45. 45. 45 or so. <laughs> Too, too many. What was what was the one? Um, there's no one, but you know, my very first case was Guantanamo. I was challenging President Bush. I was representing Osama bin Laden's driver. Um, I was nervous as all heck. It wasn't just about whether Guantanamo would be a legal black hole. The case was also about do the Geneva Conventions apply to the war on terror? Um, right. And so the stakes were enormous. I was incredibly um, scared of doing the argument, and when I did it. Um, and I was arguing against President Bush's Solicitor General. Yes. It was his 35th argument. It was my first. Right. Um, and I did it, and it went well. And, um, you know, that really did change my life because nobody thought that was a winnable case. Once we won it, then everyone wanted to hire me from fancy corporations <laughs> to, um, you know, Barack Obama. That's where he heard about me. He right. was in the Senate. So it was a career-changing so It was. And, of course, I had no idea. I mean, I just... Did it. I actually thought I was throwing away my career because, you know, my dream job at that point was to be national security advisor at the White House. Okay. And representing Osama bin Laden's driver is not exactly the career path <laughs> yeah, to doing that. <laughs> so I had no not your idea. First choice. Yeah, exactly. No idea this would happen. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And um, so talk to me about that. You said you're incredibly nervous. I've I've had a recent um, a recent bout of. Uh, high excitement and high anxiety. So mm -hmm. I, I changed, uh, I set my own firm about 16 months ago, 17 months ago now. Um, 
uh, not out of my own choosing, and decided, you know, this was what I was going to do after 23 years with another organization. And uh, it, it's been a journey of extreme excitement and highs and this is going to be great and I can be my own boss and this is the, I should have done this, you know, people say, oh, you should have done this years ago and I'm sitting in the back of my mind going, should I, shouldn't I? So I had this sort of excitement followed by high uh, or low points of anxiety of, oh my God, is this going to work? Yeah. You know, I'm married, I have four children, I, have, I live in Westport, Connecticut, I, the bills to pay, blah, blah, yeah. you know. So it's been a real roller coaster of excitement and anxiety. I can only imagine that arguing cases mm -hmm. it ha has a similar kind of feel. Yeah. To well, it. well, first of all, just because I have experienced you and what you do in terms of training leadership for several days, I have no doubt you're going to be incredibly successful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I know it you firsthand. It. You had it here first. So um, that is palpably obvious to me. But I get the anxiety. Um, and, you know, even, you know, when I argued my 45th case at Supreme Court just a few months ago, I felt that nervousness. Right. You know, I felt like, you know, so much is on the line. My client's on the line. My reputation's on the line. Um, and I think it's like in a lot of our American culture, you don't talk about it. You're supposed to just bottle, bottle it, it up. Bottle it up, yeah. And I think that's not very healthy. And that's one of the things I talk about with my younger lawyers and be very open. Hey, I'm actually nervous as all heck before yeah. I do this. Um, and the truth is training and experience do make things easier, but when you're walking up to the podium, it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. yeah. And there's a, I can't remember who coined it, but somebody said, you know, the, you hear a lot from actors, you know, a, 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 a reasonable dose of nerves focuses the mind. Yes. Exactly. You know, nothing, nothing like that to, exactly. to, to focus the mind. So yeah, I get that. Now you just mentioned, you know, your law firm and, and the lawyers that work for you. And on the walk up, we had a we had a, a quick conversation where you asked me, "Is have I had any law firms as clients?" Mm -hmm. And I said, "In my 25-year career, not one." And you said, "That doesn't surprise me." <laughs> exactly. Why didn't it surprise you? Yeah. So you know, I'm privileged to work at Hogan Lovells, which is a big 2,800-person law firm. It's incredible. It's incre It's very well managed, which yeah. is the total exception to law firms. Um, I work with a lot of other law firms, and I'm shocked by how bad their management is. In part, I think, you know, lawyers, part of their training is to just kind of be bombastic and like think they have all the right answers. And one of the things good managers do and some one of the things you teach is how to listen to other people and try and build a culture. Um, and so it's almost baked into the DNA that we can't admit that we're weaker than we should be. And, you know, right. um, it's just a real problem that lawyers have, which is self-criticism and you know I've certainly felt it too I don't mean to say that mm. um, that uh, that I'm immune from it but they don't want to be criticized they want to be told you know doing everything right and so on and so going to an outsider to get some help and perspective is a really hard thing to do but yet it's so valuable I've seen yeah yeah now you talked about uh, you have a team of uh, so the, the law firm's 2800 you have a, a team of lawyers uh, about 20 that work for you. You also have a not-for-profit with another 10 folks. So you're you're leading, you're managing, you're running things as well as doing what you do. Um, so talk to me about sort of leading others, the mentoring. Uh, in fact, I got a quote. Here you go. I'm going to grab this piece of paper. I, think I, pulled, I might have pulled it from your site that said, uh, win of the Financial Times innovative lawyer award in 2017. I don't often hear the word innovation and 
the legal <laughs> side of things, yeah. you know, brought together. But my sense of view is, is that you're a little different when it comes to leading and managing people, mentoring people. So, so where's that come yeah. from? How do you? Yeah, you no, do I that? have a total startup mentality. I mean, you know, I've worked for years uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, many of my closest friends come from there. I'm always kind of watching how they do things, how they innovate. Um, and to me, a key is something I briefly mentioned before, but it is this idea of taking ideas from wherever they come from, running your organization in a bottom-up way. So everyone who works on my team knows, you know, you may not even gone to law school. I have one kid who I hire every year, never even gone to law school. Um, but that person is just as welcome to give me ideas to even write, you know, try sections of papers or whatever. Um, because sometimes actually that person has the fresh perspective and the innovation. Yeah. And so my task as a manager is to harness all of these inputs and figure out how what's right, what's wrong. There's a lot of stuff that's wrong, obviously, so you're sifting. You have to have patience. You gotta listen. You gotta listen to your team. And if you can do those things, you can build something that's a lot stronger. And so we do all kinds of cases that you know, people think are unwinnable, and right. you know, both on the corporate side and on the nonprofit side. Um, and uh, that, to me, is you know, it's no fun to be a lawyer to just do the same case that anyone else could do. It's to win that case that nobody else can win. And the only way to do that is to have innovative, fresh thinking. And honestly, I don't think that's going to come from me all the time at right. all. Yeah. It's going to come from everyone else. Yeah, you you told me a lovely story on the way up of of people that you've mentored. Uh, and worked with over the years that have gone on to do uh, you know more things than you have done and how that's becoming more rewarding as well it's so rewarding yeah the current solicitor general is uh, my mentee and it is just so lovely to watch her and you know I saw her argue like for example the abortion case and right. I said you know I would have loved to have argued that case yeah. she did better Good. she did better she did better yeah. that's yeah. there yeah. that's amazing yeah. and what that that was um that's been tough in the news recently yeah, of course. Uh, and now at subsequent more there's another three or four big cases coming up that people are starting to worry about as well oh yes <laughs> do you worry about them oh yes yeah. some of them are mine so i worry <laughs> about them a lot um we'll see what happens you know uh yes yeah uh unbelievable unbelievable um let's talk about well so my business as you met you kindly mentioned earlier uh, we do a lot of work on culture change and a lot of work on leadership development. One of the one of the words we use is transformative learning. Mm -hmm. So we think about you know where leaders are within an organisation, where the organisation is wanting to go, and how do we need to change those mindsets and behaviours of those leaders? And a lot of that is really transforming. If, if you want, if the organisation is transforming, then the people have to be transforming. Mm -hmm. You can't say, oh, we want to transform the organisation, and everybody stays the same, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, organisations are only people. So um, that's our, uh, our work around it. So the last uh, time you experienced transformative learning sounded like your improv work. Mm -hmm. So what was going on at that time? What did you do and why was it so transformative? Um, great, so during COVID, the beginning of COVID, um, my wife is a doctor at the Veterans Hospital and on the front line. So um, we had to take COVID incredibly seriously. She couldn't be out of work. Right. So we locked the house down. She actually moved out for a while. I did no outside engagements of any, short, any sort. So I went from four or five days on the road, 
arguing cases, giving speeches, making pitches, to being in my room. And um, so, and I got okay at Zoom. There was no problem with it itself, itself but I started to realize I was much more scripted. Right. I would have the, my notes on the screen on one side of the Zoom. And um, I got really worried that once the pandemic ended, I'd lose my spontaneity. So one of my dear friends is a guy named Mike Birbiglia, who's a top improv comedian. And I mentioned this to him and I said, you know, do you think there's any kind of training I could do that would help? And he said, yes, you got to meet my own improv coach, Liz Allen, who is basically the top improv coach in the nation. And so I met her, we immediately bonded. I thought she'd be giving me one-on-one -on -one kind of lessons on right. spontaneity. <clears throat> Instead, she threw me in with an improv group and- Random people. Random people random I'd never met. And it was so challenging and nerve wracking. Like we'd start a class and she'd be like, okay, Neil, you're that pair of sunglasses, you know, talk to the rock about what you're feeling. And you know, this is not what lawyers do, of course. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, and you know, we'd be working in teams and you know, there's so many things that you, I got from that. One is just like how much great product depends on your team and trust in your team. They got to know you have their back and they got to and you got to know that they've got yours because it allows for spontaneity. It allows for creativity. It allows for a kind of shared product and shared experience. So that was really important to me. The other is just the act of listening, which right. I know you're just so good at. Um, but most people, particularly Americans, are not. They're just in their own heads. And the whole thing in improv is whatever the they whatever the prompt is, you know, you're not supposed to be thinking about it while someone else is talking. Yeah. That you're supposed to react to whatever that person says. And so for lawyers, they're always like, oh, I got to have the clever line ready to go yeah. when it's my I turn. I got to know what they're right. going to say before they right. say it because right. I know what or I'm Or it's not say even next. about them. It's just like you've got your own <laughs> clever, funny line. Right. And improv can't work that way. It's right. got to be reactive to whatever the last person said. And so um, that kind of free form knowledge. Um, I think was really important. And then on the listening side, like she would, at the end of an hour and a half class, come back to various things that were said by participants. So she'd say something like, okay, remember that sunglass character? Neil, now you're the sunglasses as opposed to Jez. And uh, you should, uh, you know, you're 25 years in the future. So I had to remember, what did you say at the beginning of class? How do I push it forward 25 years? All of that. And it's been to me, the most transformative lesson, both personally, but professionally too. Um, and I know you kind of do this in your own leadership classes, but to do it through the improv lens is also really fun because oh, yeah. it's hilarious. Yes, so. yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Mine, sometimes mine's not as much fun, but it's, it's definitely that uh, ability to be on your toes and, you know, you, we experienced each other in, in January in, um, in Jackson. You got 30 odd people sat around having a conversation and you're listening to all of that and not only are you thinking about how do I want to respond from that but also what are they going to think about that response when I respond Correct. to it. So there's a lot of noise that can yes. actually happen inside yes. your head as you're sitting there listening and it's uh, it's an art and it's a science for mm. sure. Yeah. It's it, it's not easy and um, we do a lot of work at the moment. You'll, you'll like this. You know when you're on Zoom mm -hmm. Uh, if you're in, if you're in a group of more than two, whenever you speak, the box lights up. Lights up. Yeah. So we now have a piece of software. We work with a group, not face to face in a room, but virtually, 
or we can do it in a room where we actually capture the airtime. Mm -hmm. So how much airtime do people use within whatever? So if we're having a business conversation for an hour, at the end of that hour, we'll put up a pie chart. It'll just have percentages on it. Mm -hmm. It'll be like 25%, 10%, 4%, mm -hmm. 10%, 2%, whatever it is. And then just say to the group, who's who? Mm -hmm. And it's just purely a capture of their airtime, not what they said within their airtime, but a capture of the airtime. Then we'll get stuck into, okay, Mr. 25%, you know, why were you talking, you right. know, three times more than five other people put together? Right. Kind of thing, and right. just get into that because- I'd it, like to see the gender breakdown on that data. <laughs> we, we, it's really interesting. So not only the, gen, the gender breakdown, but what we're doing research on at the moment is uh, two things. The hierarchical breakdown, mm -hmm. we have worked with I think we're now on eight to 10 top teams in the last six months. And when you look at the higher percentages, it's usually the most senior person in the room mm -hmm. that speaks the most. Interesting. And in fact, on two of them, more than 50% of the time. Interesting, because like for us, I would say, you know, I as the senior person probably talk the least or close to it. Yeah. Because the whole goal is to try and get the inputs. Exactly. Um, to, yeah. It's to seek information and yeah. to seek reasons and to seek ideas yeah. and, and as opposed to giving information. Right. Yeah. And so that's the light bulb that goes off with these senior yeah. teams is you show them that and they will go, oh, no, really? <laughs> I spoke for 50% of the time. <laughs> like, wasn't that good? Uh -huh. um, and then when you break that down and say, okay, and so when you did speak, what did you speak about? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a lot of giving information. I'd also be interested, and it's probably too hard to track, but effectiveness of what people are saying because how much actually gets implemented. And I would suspect it's skewed, obviously, if the leaders are the ones who are talking a lot because be, their stuff is going to be implemented more. But yeah. I've experienced how mostly people blather on and it's not effective no, at all. People yeah. just chew right. Well, and it also depends on what you're trying to look for. So, for example, uh, if you're trying to develop empathy, mm -hmm. you're probably not the person who should be speaking 50% of the exactly. time. Right? You know, some obvious stuff. If you want to be uh, one of the big things in our world at the moment is being a more inclusive leader. Um, it's exactly to what you said. I, I, you, know, you, you called it bottom up. You know, I, I want the best ideas from everybody. Yeah. I want to listen to everybody. Then, you know, then go from there. Inclusive leadership is exactly that, bringing people in, yeah. and that's a verbal behavior. Mm -hmm. Hey, so-and-so, I haven't heard from you in the last right. exactly. hour. I, ooh, what's going on? I want to bring you into this. Exactly. What's going on? Yeah. Recognizing that. So, so by showing them that they don't do that actually really helps that kind of transformative learning to, yeah. I got to talk less. I got to ask more questions. I got to bring people in. It's simple stuff. Yeah. It's not complicated stuff. Yeah. Um, super interesting. So I'm going to go back to my notes again. Um, okay. At the bottom, no, sorry, it was at the, at the top of one of your uh, uh, things. It had mentioned the key to crafting a persuasive and successful argument lies in human connection, empathy, and faith in the power of your ideas. So I want to challenge you on that. Um, not because I don't believe it, but I don't believe it came out of a lawyer's mouth. <laughs> Human connection, <laughs> empathy, belief in your ideas. That, that for me, you know, I read that and that's leadership. Mm -hmm. um, influencing other people, that, 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 that's mm -hmm. leadership. So, you know, you had a 
a ton of experience in this space. How do you, how have you crafted it and narrowed it to, to those kind of core leadership behaviors? Yeah, I mean, in part, it a little bit comes out of this improv experience, although I'd been doing it less consciously before. Um, the whole point of like oral argument is not to give the best speech. You know, you can sound beautiful and, you know, turn a phrase. It doesn't matter right. because they're not there for you and your speech making abilities. They're there to make a decision on a case that will influence million, impact millions of people. So the way to do that is not to be thinking about you. It's only to be thinking about them. Right. And so you're reading their body language. You're looking into their eyes. You're studying everything they've written to try and get into their head. You know, I used to do this a little bit when I'd take exams in law school or college. I would read everything the professor had written, their scholarship. I'd try and understand even the words that they like to use, like, and mimic them back in an exam answer. And it's the same kind of thing with courtroom advocacy. Right. But honestly, I think it's the same thing, and this is the point of that TED Talk you're referring to. It's true with any actual argument. You know, you're arguing with your spouse or your business partner or whatever, it's, you can be right in your own head. It doesn't get you very far. <laughs> they need to think you're right, yeah. right? And so um, it's all about empathy and it's all about listening. And, um, and to me, the best teams that I've encountered are ones in which they're just truly listening to one another. Yeah, and that's true in argument as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So what's next for you? Neil Cattiel, what is the next, now nah, let's go, three years look like? I think the next three years, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's getting to be more of a challenge to argue in the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, I like that challenge, so I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, I have uh, a couple of other things that I really want to do long term, which are like to teach kids about uh, civics and about kind of how to listen to one another and have dialogue and about our nation's incredible history which is rooted in that but yeah. it feels like it's being lost today in kind of the extreme partisan wars so you know I think that'll probably look like a kids TV show something like that oh fantastic um, yeah so that's uh, that's kind of the thing that I've been thinking a lot about um, you know my generation is I think maybe lost a little bit on this <laughs> but maybe the next generation we can we can start to restore american democracy well you i mean i love the optimism that you have in in everything you know it, it oozes out of you and i am um, optimistic about my generation too yeah. it's a little bit of a joke i, I mean yeah. i think that um I, th I do feel like right now we're in a really dark polarized time and I really want to do everything in my power to try and pull ourselves out. And that's leadership, right? It, it's like, what, what can we do? And what I love about what you do is, is it's, done at, it's done at a level where you can affect, you know, change in the entire country. Mm. You know, it's large, meaningful things. Sometimes I work with some leaders, I'm just like, guys, this, this, this isn't important. You know, it's, let's just make a quick decision on this and move on. There are, there are bigger issues at play. Um, Oh, that's good to know. The children's TV show. I think the improvisation is going to help you there. Well. No, there's nothing like working with kids. What do they say? Never work with kids and animals. If you want, if you want, well, pre if you want something predictive, <laughs> don't work with kids. Don't work with animals. Well, so. I like a dynamic environment, so we'll see. <laughs> kids TV show with animals. That would be a challenge. Um, 
So when I'm uh, back in January, I asked you a question. Uh, in fact, I asked the whole group the question. I'm going to ask it again now. Um, which, which was, why should anyone be led by you? How would, how would you answer that one now? I think what I said is true now, which is I, I don't lead as much as I listen. And so, um, you know, I try and listen to everyone respectfully without biases as much as possible. We all have them. So I'm trying to strip those away, try and just get to the kernel of what that idea is that that person's saying. Sometimes they might be nervous, particularly if they're a junior person. So yeah. you might have to package the idea in a better way than they did. But basically, one should be led by me because they're actually leading themselves. themselves. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They don't even know it. Yeah, yeah. yeah love it, love it. Um, and then this is my capture all final question, which is, what question should I have asked you that I haven't? Hmm. You ask so many good questions. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I think. You must have had better ones from Katie Couric and all these other. No, you know. no, not at all. So um, I think uh, I think you've got them. I'm sorry. Nice. Uh, you stumped me. I like it. You stumped me. I stumped Neil Cattio. Uh, yes, I'll did. take it. That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you, my friend. Great. Thank you. We're done. We've got to head back down this mountain. Okay, let's do it. Thanks, Neil.